You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 31 of a fanfiction story titled Twelve Lies I Told Shingen Takeda by Twelfth Night Project. He cupped his hands on my face, held me still, and kissed me again, a slow, reverent exploration of my mouth that found the bank fire deep in my core and let it burn freely again. The doubts that Aki had raised turned to ash. Then he stopped, gasping for air before falling into a coughing fit. I rubbed his back until he caught his breath, knowing that there were things worse than doubts lurking out there. I am better, he said, even if that didn't sound like it. I nodded my agreement, since I knew how bad it had been the morning in the cave. You said you were always sick. To a degree, he lay down and patted the space at his side, and I curled into his embrace. I will get worse, and then better, but not as well as before. Then, I will get worse than the time before. And there will soon be a day when the worst times pile up so high that I will no longer be able to get past them. God, what was I doing? Getting wrapped up in another person who was going to leave me. Maybe not my choice, but it was going to happen. Soon, I buried my face against his chest and shut my eyes. I refused to be the one to need comfort. Not here. Not when he was facing the worst. All I could do was hold on tight to the hug and breathe in and out the fact that we were here now. That there was a now. This now. You can't hold on to a moment, but I did my best to seal it into my memory. I could lock inside myself the feeling of being cocooned in his arms. I could hold the warmth, the care. I could imprint in my heart how it felt to have his fingers stroke my cheek. The sensation of his lips brushing against my eyelids the rhythm of his heart against mine. It won't be tomorrow, but I doubt I'll see another spring. His large hand in the late summer sun warmed the back of my head. We held on through another moment, and another, quiet and still. The beam of sunlight moved slowly across the room, illuminating the tiny dust particles in its path. Then the room's shadows deepened as the sun slipped behind the castle's western wall. To the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, greetings from the wild, arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Our special guest fan fiction author today is Twelfth Night Project. She has been a member of AO3 since 2021 and currently has seven fan fiction works posted for the Ikemen Sengoku fandom. She loves doing photography, figure skating, and she's also a screenwriter. She has had a few of her shorts made, and one of those shorts is currently doing the festival circuit, which is so incredibly cool and exciting. So congratulations on that. Twelfth Night Project has a career in medical writing. So between work, screenwriting, and fan fiction, 
She is always writing something. She also has two adorable cats, and it sounds like they keep her very busy, which I can absolutely relate to. <laughs> Twelfth Night Project, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the Fanfic Maverick. How are you? I'm great, and thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this and excited about talking fanfic and not talking about my cats, who don't like each other. But <laughs> <laughs> Hey, that's okay. You know, cats like what they like, right? So you just kind of take it as it is. <laughs> my cats are like that too and everything. But sometimes they make really good soundboards when we're writing or producing a project and you just need to talk to somebody about it with. I don't know if you do that, but I do that with my cat all the time. He hears about the podcast like all day long and he's very <laughs> patient with me when I talk about it. So hopefully yours are good sounding boards for your projects too. <laughs> You know, they, they can't protest. Uh, <laughs> although one of them does get into a habit of playing shelf golf. So I'll be trying to write and then things will start being flung from the end table. Oh, yeah. Well, they just have opinions on what you're yeah. writing. That's all. That's <laughs> yeah. just opinions. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so speaking of fan fiction, I like to take us all the way back to the very beginning of your fan fiction journey. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about your first encounters with fan fiction? How did that happen? I kind of stumbled onto, and this was many years ago, a Star Trek role-playing group where we weren't role-playing in one-liners, but we'd sort of started telling these stories to each other and interacting. And so one person would write like a page and a half, or if you're me, 10, and then pass it on. And then other people would then respond to it. And we kind of created this whole Star Trek storyline all with original characters. I mean, this isn't with Kirk or Picard. You know, we knew that they existed out there in the universe and somebody might encounter one or the other of them. But this was all OCs and I would just go online and this whoever was there, we would just start playing with our characters. So that was my first fan fiction. And right around the same time of that, I started another role-playing group with figure skating fandom where we would also create original characters and start writing stories about them in this contained world. But they weren't, I mean, the figure skating ones, I don't know if it's quite, fan we called it skate fic because they weren't interacting with the real skaters, with the real people. These were people who were kind of based on archetypes, you know, the, the rent a Russian Paris skater. And, you know, the skate mom from hell and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> so and we had fun with that. So it was, it was fanfic, but, you know, we, it was more like we were kind of creating this on this internet space, on this message board. It wasn't through AO3 or LiveJournal. It was, I can't even remember the program we used at the time because it was in the early days of the internet. That's so cool, though, because it really lends itself to having really amazing community experiences with other people, right? Yes, Because you're exactly. interacting constantly with these other writers who are also, it's like this big collaboration project, it sounds like, right? Where yeah. you guys are all collaborating on the story and contributing to the cast of characters and building this timeline and story. It just sounds like such a neat thing because you're doing it with other people all over the world. Yes. Yeah, that was the best thing about it. It was just discovering the, these people living in California and in New York, New Jersey. And I would sometimes go, I actually got to visit a couple of them here and there. And I got to go to New York once and hang out with some of them. And it was just 
a new way to to meet and hang out with people that you could just talk about fandom all the time. Oh my God, that sounds so freaking cool and amazing. I love that. Now, I have a question for you because I am woefully inadequately versed in RPG stuff, right? But I think it's fascinating. I just don't know much about it. So when you were doing these RPG stories with this community of people, is it common practice to base your RPG character off of yourself? Is it like a like a glorified version of you in real life? Or is it completely separate from you as a person? Like, how does that work? For me, it was completely separate. I had about 12 characters that I kept throwing in and playing with, depending on how the story went on. Uh, one of them was an, an assassin. I never killed anybody. So so for, for these, I mean, this was kind of a role-playing community, but I don't think anybody threw themselves into the pod. I mean, I think every character, as a writer, every character that you write, there's got to be at least one thing in that character that you completely relate to, because that's your way in. But I don't think that at that time, any of those characters that I wrote were based on me. But I mean, there might have been one who was kind of snarky, and I can be kind of snarky. And, and there might have been one who could be a little anxious, and I can be a little anxious. And there might have been another one who had, was missing somebody. But, you know, they weren't all, none of them were me. It was just, there, there was a part of me that I could use to understand that new character. Uh, okay, that makes total sense. I had always wondered that about RPG, because I, I know a lot of people that do that. And there are some people that I feel like are very attached to their RPG character, where it almost becomes like an extension of who they are as people in real life. And then there are others who are like, nope, nope, there's a clear separation, you know, like it's it's just a character that I came up with and really enjoy writing for. Do you think that your experience with RPG has helped you with crafting characters when you're doing writing projects now with your writing projects, like with, with screenwriting and with fan fiction and things like that? I don't think it hurts. I mean, I think any time that you can practice writing and come at it from a different angle, it may help you in the future. I mean, because some things that work one day may not work another. And just as someone who's struggled with writer's block a lot, you know, you might be trying to sit down and, and, and work in your screenplay and you're like, I, I'm just not, I'm not feeling it. You know, what has worked for me in the past? And you might pull out something like, if this were a role-playing game, how would I go into it? And then another day, it might be more like, okay, what, would, what does this character like to eat and drink? It's mostly trying to figure out what's going to work for you in a, in a specific situation. So, Right. So it's kind of just like one of the many tools in your yeah. arsenal, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, playing with the role-playing game was more of the community experience. You know, my dad had just died right about the time that I discovered this community, and I was being pretty much of a hermit. So this was kind of my way to reconnect with people you know and using the fictional characters was as much of a tool as you know for me as it was for a tool for writing if that makes sense yeah no absolutely it makes total total sense and again you know i just love that with the rpg communities it is really just connecting with other people i love that it's a community endeavor and so collaborative i'm sure that that kind of feeds that creative need for a lot of people to uh, to create things and tell stories. So I just think that that's really cool. I know that before the show, we were talking a little bit about your fan fiction writing timeline a little bit. And you had mentioned that the stuff you wrote before wasn't 
published stuff, which I can see that with RPG. It's not really published anywhere per se. So when you joined AO3 under your 12th Night Project writer handle, was that the first time that you actually posted fan fiction like, publicly? No, actually not. When I was talking about the skate fic, I was doing RPG, but I had this idea at the time, it was literary transformation for some reason, it's just, I just love doing it, was to create a version of Phantom of the Opera that took place in an ice rink. And so I took all the Phantom of the Opera archetypes, you know, the, the Phantom, the scarred maestro character, and made him a coach. And the ingenue who is trying to make it as, as this guy, as who he was secretly coaching. And I, I started writing these chapters and I had a friend who had a website where she was hosting fiction that was based in the figure skating world. And I was like, I sent her a couple of chapters. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of working on this. Would you want to host it? And she said, yeah, I, I kind of like this. And so I would write chapters and send it to her and she would post them. And it was called Phantoms. And I had an alias at that point, Rink Ghost. And I got about 30 chapters in and realized I had written myself a cast of thousands and I had no idea how it was going to end. And that was, you know, I'm ashamed to admit it. I abandoned a fic. I feel so terrible. Oh, it's a abandoned whip up there. <laughs> yeah. You'll never find it. I think her, she's not hosting anymore. She's, you know, lost her URL. So yeah, you'll never find that online. I will never find those chapters again because I was like four dead computers ago. But yeah, so that was my first and I never finished it. A lot of lessons learned there. But yeah, so, so that, yeah, the Twelfth Night Project stories are my first AO3 fanfics. But, you know, many years ago, I had this other one that I never finished. Oh, yeah, but you still had it, though. That's so cool. That's so funny. Like, the guest that we had on last, Fan Tomato, they got their start in fandom through Phantom of the Opera fandom and fanfiction and published novels and stuff. So that's just so funny <laughs> that you also wrote something for Phantom of the Opera. I think they would get a big kick out of that. And especially, like, I love that combination between Phantom of the Opera characters and the ice rink, you know, combining those two things. That's so creative and cool. I love it that. It works. It works really well, actually. You know, yes. it's, it's a natural fit. I, I thought it was. Yes, I can absolutely see that. That's so funny. Plus, that hails back to the time of the early days of the internet, when that was how you published fan fiction. You had someone's private site that hosted it, you know, Mm-hmm. And you would just post chapter by chapter on these random websites and stuff. And then hope that people would find it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You just hoped that people would find it. I think a lot of writers had those. Um, do you remember those old school guest books that you could put on a private site that people could sign to kind of just say, hi, I visited your site or something like yes. that? Yeah. There were those. And then some people would put their email address and just hope that people would send them emails to tell them that they like their fic and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty much it. I mean, I would sometimes, well, not, not me, because I would keep the identity, the Rink Ghost identity separate from my, myself. The, the host would sometimes put links up on an ice skating message group and some people would go, oh, that sounds cool. And they'd go and read it because I wasn't the only one writing escape fiction. There was someone who was doing this amazing soap opera that was called The Strong and the Sequined. And it was hysterical and it was, it was brilliant. And 
So, you know, there was an audience of people who were looking for stories set in the figure skating world. And it was it was definitely a genre among figure skating fans. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, and nowadays we have, what's that one ice skating anime that everybody likes? Yuri on Ice. Yes, Yuri on Ice. So now we have that. A lot of the ice skating fans kind of gravitate towards that fandom a lot, I think. But uh, but yeah, I had no idea that ice skating fic was even a thing. This sounds like kind of more back in the 90s, right? Uh, yeah, 90s, early 2000s. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's so cool. I love that. Love it, love it, love it. Have you checked out Yuri on Ice? I was in the middle of moving to a new house when it was being broadcast, and I haven't found where it's been translated yet. But I mean, I have looked at clips here and there going, I, I really need to sit down and watch all of these. I have a general idea what it's about. And I have a general idea which skaters it's based on. But no, I haven't sat down and watched all of it. And, and I intend to and I want to because I, you know, everything about it that I've seen, I've liked. I just haven't had the time to sit down and do it when I remember that I want to sit down and do it. When you get into an anime, it's kind of one of those things where you have to dedicate the time to it. So I totally get that. I get that. There's lots of animes I haven't seen because I just, I don't have the time to just like sit down and focus on it. But, you know, someday, someday, right? I wanted to ask you about how has fan fiction and fan fiction writing impacted you personally? I know that we've kind of talked about your timeline on writing and posting fan fiction, but I'm not really sure how long you've been actually like reading and engaging with fan fiction. So I'm kind of wondering about that and then just wondering how the whole concept of fan fiction has impacted you personally. What are your thoughts on the value of fan fiction? Like what makes it special and worth our time? Well, I'll answer the last question first, which is, for me, it's a community. It's this, this way that you can like immediately interact with other writers or, you know, a fandom and, and see how people are interpreting it and taking it. The other stuff that, you know, the screenplays that I write, I can write a screenplay and send it off to a contest, you know, or send it off to a producer and hope for the best, but it, it didn't disappear into a drawer usually. But there's something very immediate and way to reach out to people through fan fiction. And, you know, whether it's talking about something between a group of people who just are just enjoying this fandom and enjoying this fiction and going, hey, this is kind of cool. I like their take on that. Or getting really involved and going, I wonder what's going to happen next. So for me, it's it definitely the community aspect. I'll read anything I can get my hands on, if it's fan fiction or if it's fiction. In terms of as a consumer of fan fiction, I just consider it consuming fiction. You know, there's stuff out there, it's such an amazing quality of fan fiction that I don't see any difference in quality between that and something that's commercially published or commercially put out there. I approach it the same way I approach, you know, a book I'm going to pick up. It just, this is just something really cool to read and I enjoy it. Personally, as a fanfic writer, it cured my, my writer's block with the screenwriting. So I'm pretty grateful for it. That's absolutely perfect. And I love those answers. I love it. I have spoken to several people now who have told me that when they write either professionally or they write other things besides fan fiction, they have told me that the writing of fan fiction does help them in their other projects, whether it's career related writing or whether it's maybe these people are writing screenplays like you are or just other things. They say that fan fiction has really benefited them positively in their ability to kind of escape the writer's block or helped them to practice 
certain things in writing or experiment, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it was exactly that. I'd been working on this screenplay, which actually eventually ended up being a pilot for four years. And I just kept getting bogged down and stuck to the point where I didn't even want to pick up a pen figuratively anymore. And I started taking this, you know, online class on just trying to reconnect with your inner artist. And she was just like, just write something, you know, whether you, know, you journal yourself 15 minutes a day and try to connect with, you know, what it is you want to say. And I was like, this is the story that's in my head. I want to write this story. I don't want to go back and work on my pilot. And so it was just, I started enjoying writing again, writing, you know, this particular story. And so by putting myself back in the practice of, of writing and enjoying writing, I could then approach the other projects that I'd been stuck on. You know, I'm finished drafts of them that need to be rewritten a thousand times because I'm compulsive about that. But at least I don't have a blank page anymore. Exactly. Now, I have a question because you do different types of writing, right? You have mm -hmm. your career writing that you do for your career, and then you have your screenplays and you have your fan fiction. I am so curious to know between screenwriting and fan fiction writing, do those feel fundamentally different to you? Yeah, they do in a certain sense. I mean, well, story and character is the same, whether you're trying to create a story for a visual or a story for fan fiction or a story for published fiction. Not that I've, I've tried to write anything prose-wise that way. But in terms of screen, screenwriting is very much a... They use the word real estate a lot because a screenplay has to be a very, very set of pages. And you're limited to less than 120 pages for dramas. And they really like comedies to be between 90 and 100 pages. And the convention is, is that one page of a film script equals one minute of screen time. And so you have to be very, very economical about how you go about when you're writing your last draft about that word count and that page count. Whereas with the fan fiction, you can write as much or as little as you want. You know, no one is going to sit there and with a clicker and go one, two, three, four. Oh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> You've gone over your word count. And we can't. Yes. You. So it's less constraining, it sounds like, with the fan yes. fiction writing versus the, yeah. the screenwriting. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But in terms of story and character, you know, a good character is a good character, whether they're, you know, in fan fiction or whether they're in a, in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did want to talk about crafting characters later as we go on with the interview, because um, you have an MC in this story that I absolutely love. So I can't wait to ask you about that. But I did want to go into talking about this particular fandom. I will admit right now that this was the first time I had ever heard of Ikemen Sengoku. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> I had to look <laughs> it up. I understand that it is a, it's like a, it's a game, right? Yeah, it's called a visual novel, but it is an app that originally, I think, came through the PS Vita, PlayStation Vita, which I don't have, but they made a mobile version that you can download to your phone. So I guess technically it's a merge between a game. It's more of a novel. I mean, they call it a visual novel. So it kind of sounds like a novelized game where it takes you through different scenarios and situations and there's a lot of character world building, I would assume, right? Yeah. But it takes you through this story. But it's a, it's a game. Yeah, it's, an, it's a novel that is also a game. It's a visual novel. It is like, in a sense, a choose your own adventure because you get to pick who your love interest is. And then 
as you're reading the love interest story, there is an illusion of choice because in each chapter there'll be a section where it'll say it'll give you a, a choice of three different answers. But your answers don't really change how the story is going to go. It may change the wording of the next set of dialogue. The answers that you pick actually just give you points, and if you get a certain number of points, you get more content. Once you've chosen your love interest, your choices within the chapters don't really, at least not in, not in this particular game, don't really affect how the ending goes. Okay, so when I was reading this fan fiction, there were a lot of characters to learn about and be introduced to, and I loved all of them. Are you saying that when you play this game, you can choose any of them as your love interest? Yes. The game's set up that you play as the character who is my. I've kept her in the story. You can change her name if you want, but you enter the game as Mai is sent back in time accidentally through this wormhole. She and Sasuke both end up sent back in time. Sasuke because he wanted to go. This is his physics project. And they both land in medieval Japan four years apart. He arrives like in 1578 and she arrives in 1582 where she saves the life of Nobunaga Oda. When you play the game, you get this prologue and you're introduced to all the different love interests. And there are, at this point, I think 13 playable love interests. And in the four more that they haven't released the routes in English. So there are 17 playable love interests. So you go through the whole prologue and it's sort of set who you meet and when you meet them. And then at the end, you get to pick which one you want to pursue. And when you finish it, you can go back and start again and, and play another route. There's hours of content on this game. I mean, it's, I, I started playing it in, I, you know, there's a lot of stories that go, well, it was a pandemic and I was working from home. So I got a, addicted to playing this game during the pandemic. But yeah, you have, at this point, 13 separate love interests and you can play each route. There are 10 chapters you play. And at that point, then you have a choice between a romantic ending or a dramatic ending. And there are no unhappy endings in Act 1 of Ikkim and Sangoku. So whether you pick romantic or dramatic, it still has a happy ending. It's just there's more angst in the dramatic before you get to the happy ending. Oh, so I have to know, have you played all of the love interests then at this point or no? I have played all of the available ones at least once. Like I said, there's four that are not yet available, but I have played them all. I did all the dramatic endings first, and now I'm working my way through all the romantic endings. And then there's a couple of characters who have, they're slowly releasing a third set of endings called the Eternal Ending. Ah, okay. And then there's another set beyond that called Act Two, where some characters now have Act Two story plots, which have three sets of endings, like a blissful ending, I don't remember the second one, and a tragic ending. So there is a possibility of choosing a tragic ending. I believe that when I start playing the act two, I will not choose to do any of the tragic endings. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, your story ended on a very hopeful, like happy ending. I can't imagine it ending tragically. So I <laughs> yeah, and, and they haven't done a tragic. I mean, his Shingen's character is one of the middle released characters. So they've only released his dramatic and romantic ending. They haven't released an internal one for him yet, and they haven't released an act two for him. 
knowing what is canon for his story, I can kind of figure out what they would do with the tragic ending. Oh, God, I can't do it. I don't like it. I don't like exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I don't want to go that either. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so, so cool. I love the whole choose your adventure interactive gaming. I'm not a huge gamer myself, but I do remember that when I was growing up, those choose your own adventure novels were this huge thing. And I had like a million of them and I loved them so much, you know, (laughs) so the whole choose your own adventure thing has always been something that I've been drawn to. And because there are so many characters here in this world, I can absolutely see how that would be really interesting to go through all the different scenarios and just see what happens. And it, it is really, I mean, because I've, since I've gotten addicted to this particular game, a friend of mine got me a um, Switch for my birthday, so I started playing other games. But this one is, I mean, the written content is really good. I mean, you've got the combination of action and adventure, and the character of Mai is a really good, snarky narrator. And when she and Sasuke get together and start riffing on cultural memes, it's, it's historically funny. And I have broken out giggling playing this game a lot. And there's a lot of adventure and there's romance. And the M-rated content is pretty darn good. <laughs> so, and then they have, I mean, besides the, you know, the, the, the 13 potential stories that you can play, they do monthly stories. They do event stories where you can go in and you have like a week to get through, you know, a shorter story. And it's different characters each month that you can play. There's just an amazing amount of content for a game that is, I will say, technically free, but ends up actually costing me some money because in order sometimes to get through these events before they end and get to the end, you sometimes have to invest in a little money to pay a little extra (laughs) energy. (laughs) Now, I wanted to ask you about this fandom. Because um, I, I have a feeling that it's a, it's a smaller fandom, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. So what has been the experience for you being in a really small fandom like this? Is it super tight-knit? Everyone kind of knows everybody? And is it kind of like that? No, actually, I think it's more, it's, it's, it's pretty fractured. Really? And it might possibly be because this game itself is an older game from, from this company. They have something called Ikemen Revolution, which I've played which is sort of a, an Alice in Wonderland alternate universe, which I like that the main character is a little less mature and so she's a little more annoying to play. And they have something called Ikemen Vampire, which I thought I would like and, and I didn't. I hate to admit that out loud. <laughs> I'm sure that because I mean, people love Ikemen Vampire and, and they've got a couple other games that are only available in Japanese and they just released another one in English called uh, Ikemen Prince. So... If you're trying to find the fandom of Vikram and Sangaku, you're going to end up in a group of people who are just fond of this particular company's games. And so the, the discourse is not just for this game, but for the characters in the other game. There is a Facebook discussion group for Ikem and Sangaku. There's fandom on Tumblr, and there's multiple Discord servers, most of which are probably private, and I don't officially know about them. I mean, I actually don't know about them officially or not. But it's pretty fractured. I've met some really cool people through Tumblr. I have a couple of friends in real life who are gamers who I said, you've got to play this game. (laughs) And they did. And so we talk about the game in real life. But a lot of the people, a lot of the community that I interact with through my AO3 story 
are people who've kind of come in fandom blind from Reddit and just go, you know, this is kind of a cool story and, and I'm reading it. Oh, really? Oh, that's so interesting. I was not expecting that at all. I thought that, you know, the people who were going to be reading my story would be the people in the Ikemen Sengoku fandom and I'd be able to talk to them a lot about it. But it felt like 60% of my first readers were people who weren't familiar with the fandom at all. I really had to build a readership. I think Tumblr is really where I interact with the most fans. And that's also possibly because some of the content I put up on Tumblr that I don't put up on AO3 is just little comedy bits and sketches and memes that I put together. So that, you know, that's how I've met people in the fandom that way. More through that than, than through this fiction, which is not what I expected. That is so interesting. I never would have guessed that. I would have guessed that it was just this small community of people, you know, on AO3 that were all like super cool into this game and stuff and geeking out about all the different characters and stuff. So to hear that a lot of your readers go in initially fandom blind, that is so amazing and interesting. I love that. You know, and I didn't know what to expect because this is my first AO3 fic. So, I mean, I thought I'd put it up there and, you know, it'd be other people that I've, you know, that read fan fiction and, and, and play the game and, and we talk about it. And, and that wasn't how, I mean, the comfort, I mean, if you've looked at the comment, my comment box, I, you know, the people that have commented have been coming in from all kinds of angles, you know, like history buffs or sexual politics in 15th century Japan. It was not what I expected, but I really enjoyed what came out of it. Oh, absolutely. As you're talking and as I'm thinking about this story, I can absolutely see that, though, because, first of all, you did a really great job with being very clear about what the story was about and who these characters were. I, too, went in fandom blind. I had never heard of this <laughs> fandom before at all, knew none of these characters. And by the end of the story, I feel like I knew all of them really well, you know. And you did a marvelous job with explaining the backstory and the world and universe and what's going on. And there was just all this interesting intrigue and the plot was really interesting. So I can absolutely see how lots of people would be really compelled and intrigued by the story, even going in fandom blind and not really having much of a background themselves with the actual game behind the fandom. So that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, and Reddit has been great because people will start a review exchange thread where you can put your link up. And, you know, read someone else's story and they'll read yours. And, you know, most of the time they'll read your first chapter and go, you know, this is pretty cool, but it's, you know, and then they'll privately say, this is not for me and you'll never hear from them again. But I, I did have a certain amount of retention from, the, from those. Those initial reads came from Reddit, I think, except for, except for one amazing, incredible lawyer reader who read my prologue and, you know, had played the game and went, I can't wait for your story to be published. And she commented on every single chapter. and. You've got that one commenter that, you know, it's just like the unicorn of commenters. Well, I had her, you know, and so that was also pretty helpful because I didn't know what to expect, but just looking at the fandom, there wasn't going to be a huge audience. It's, it's just that not that big of an ad. You're looking at maybe 30 to 60 reads a chapter on Longfic these days for this particular fandom. Whereas you'd see someone post something on Harry Potter and there'd be like, you know, 500 people reading it within the next hour. And it, oh, you know, yeah. That doesn't yeah. happen with this. No, no. It's just a smaller piece of media that a lot of people have probably never heard of before. Mm. But, you know, I just think that that really speaks to like the quality of the writing and just how interesting this story is. So I 
I'm really excited to kind of dig into it with you a little bit. I was wondering, before we do that, though, when you read and write fan fiction, do you have any favorite tropes that you like to play with or read? Yes and no. In this case, I don't separate fan fiction from other media. I love the masquerade trope, what I did with this, with the disguise. But when I think back of the, the pieces of media, film and, and movies and theater that I really responded to, it was always the disguise, the, the secret identity. I mean, that scene in the original Batman, or no, the second Batman, when Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle are, are dancing. Mm-hmm. And you know that he's Batman and she's Catwoman, but they don't know. And there's this <laughs> moment. Right. I was like, oh, oh, that's really powerful. I mean, oh. or Grease 2, which is such a terrible movie, but that trope where he's disguised himself as a, as a mystery writer. Two movies with Michelle Pfeiffer in it, now that I think about it. Or Pump Up the Volume, where Christian Slater is, you know, this rogue DJ, you know, by night and a mild-mannered student during the day. <laughs> yeah. I love the secret identity in the masquerade, you know, and the masks that people put on and how they can be more real under the masks than they are in real life. I love that trope, whether it's in fan fiction or whether it's in movies or in TV or in the original Shakespeare play Twelfth Night, you know, Viola is disguised as a boy. Yes. So yes. that's my big one. That is my catnip. That's your catnip. <laughs> oh my God. I love the way you put that. That is so funny. But yeah, like I can totally see like where you're coming from on that because uh, you do see that pop up in media and it is so interesting, especially when the audience knows, but they don't know. And you're just sitting at the edge of your seat, like waiting for the big reveal, right? Like when's mm-hmm. it going to happen? What's going to happen? So, you know, you mentioned Shakespeare just a couple seconds ago, and I did want to ask you about that. Obviously, your AO3 handle, Twelfth Night Project, and you did have some Shakespeare tags here in this fan fiction story, which I thought was so stinking cool. I love Shakespeare. Twelfth Night happens to be one of my favorites of all time for Shakespeare. Yeah, mine too. Yeah, it's just so cool and interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Shakespeare connections in your writing here. Okay, so when I started thinking about this fanfic, And originally, like I said, it was just, it was in my head. I was playing the game all the time and I was daydreaming about the game. And I, these, these scenes started coming into my head. I mean, the cave scene, you know, where she's having that post-traumatic stress with her claustrophobia in in the cave. That scene was like the first thing that came to mind, even before I thought I was going to write anything down. It was just in my head. And I got to the point where with the screenwriting and, and the writer's block and, and, the mentor going, just write something. I don't care what you write. You know, it doesn't have to be a screenplay. Just get get yourself back in the habit of writing. And what I wanted to write was this story. So I started playing around and in my head, I'm like, I want to play in this world, but I want to have an original character. And I started thinking about Twelfth Night. And I thought, well, this would be kind of cool to transform Twelfth Night into the setting of a medieval Japan in this game. And then as I started to continue to play, and I wasn't sure which love interests I was going to use when I started playing. I just, you know, they're all fun to play. These are great love interests. There was like seven others who weren't even in 12 Lies that are, are part of the game. And the next story that I'm doing is the character who doesn't appear in this one. And I thought, I wonder if I could create a main character who then I could logically have 
you know, a good storyline route with any of these love interests. That, that was what it was in theory. In practice, it doesn't happen. It didn't work. <laughs> There's like three or four that I am completely stumped on. But, yeah, you know, a couple others that I'm going to do. And I thought, well, what if each, what if I do a series with the same main character in a multiverse? So, I mean, it's actually alternative versions of her. Oh, I see. And that would work so well. Yeah. And so you know, I was going to, you know, Twelfth Night was, it was going to be originally the Twelfth Night Project because in the frame story, Katsuko and her twin brother are both sent back in time and they're separated. And so part of the story is her searching for her brother. And I thought, well, I'll do one with Twelfth Night. And the next one I'm doing is Midsummer Night's Dream. And I've got one in mind for Winter's Tale and one for Taming of the Shrew. And I can find for most of these uh, love interests, I can find a Shakespearean story that it fits fairly well in. That's <laughs> so cool. I originally picked the Twelfth Night Project because it was a project of the story of the, the twins being separated. But as I finished writing Twelve Lies, I realized that no, the frame story is The Tempest because it's a father-daughter story. And so I had to change, even though I'd already picked a Twelfth Night Project and, and registered my AOL account when I had, was working on Twelve Lies, it suddenly occurred to me that, oh no, this series is Tempest. And so that's where the, the connections are. But the original intention was to write 10, 11 long fix stories, each one taking place within, you know, inspired by a different Shakespearean play and then fitting in this realm of, of the Tempest. But I don't think I'm going to get through all 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be quite the project. But even if you got through some of them, that would yeah. just be so amazing because it was really, really neat to see this story, even though it maybe didn't finish the way you started with it, I can absolutely see the Twelfth Night story references and culture references here with what you did. And it was just so interesting and amazing. I absolutely loved it. The full name of the fan fiction is Twelve Lies I Told Shingen Takeda. 52 chapters, so plenty of content. You won't walk away disappointed. <laughs> I think I was telling you before we started the show that I was just so impressed by the way that you balanced the character development and the character-driven plot with the characters versus the actual plot of the story because you also have political intrigue and mystery and time travel and <laughs> all of these really interesting things that are posing as this backdrop for this drama that's playing out between the actual characters and their journeys and arcs. So it was just really entertaining and really amazing. I loved reading this story. I think I told you that one of the things I loved the most about it was just the humor in it. Your MC is so sassy and she loves to laugh at things and find the humor in everything, even when the situation is dire. And it was just so entertaining to see the way that she sees the world around her. I got such a kick out of that. And hearing her internal dialogue and her thoughts about things was so incredibly entertaining. And then I also had a lot of fun picking out the cultural references that you put <laughs> in this story. Because like you say, your MC is actually from the future, like from our time, you know, mm -hmm. and she gets thrown back into medieval Japan. but. Because she is the one where most of the POV is coming from, we get to hear her internal dialogue and her perspectives and everything. And she throws in a lot of cultural references, like a, a references to a lot of movies 
I actually ended up making a little list in my notes section when I was reading this of all the times that I saw her reference. You know, she references Marvel, Batman, you know, Monty Python and the Holy (laughs) Grail, (laughs) you know, and there's tons of others in there. So it was just really fun to kind of pick those out and be like, well, of course, she would take all of that with her. You know, when she goes back to the past, it's still a part of her life experience. No one around her is going to get the reference, but she does. So it's just, oh, the whole thing was just so entertaining. I loved reading this story. And some of that, that snarky inner dialogue, that is also part of the game. I mean, when you're playing Mai, I mean, she does have, depending on the route, you know, the Mai and Suzuki route where, you know, where he is her love interest and they're both modern characters who've been trapped back in time. They riff off each other a lot. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> they even reference Mean Girls at one point, which is <laughs> yeah. hysterical. Because she, you know, he's always trying to give her ground spikes because he's a ninja. And she's like, stop trying to make ground spikes happen. So I wanted to keep that because this is kind of my love letter to the game. And I wanted to keep all the stuff in the game that I found charming. And so I did try to, even though it is my take on the game, I did try to keep, you know, the fun stuff, the, the, the cultural references and, you know, the inner dialogue, even though. Mai, as a character from the game, is a lot more of a peace-loving, girly character than my main character. So, Absolutely, yeah. It was fun to have Mai in there. I didn't realize that she was the main character in the actual game, but just having her there as kind of a side character in the story. I really liked Mai, you know? I think I liked Katsu the best, but I really liked Mai. I thought that she was really cool, especially because when she finds out in the story that Katsu isn't who she says she is, you know? Mai's really cool about it. She could have like totally ruined Katsu's life (laughs) with that information, but she chose not to. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mai's great. I mean, and and I do love her as a character. Even when I play the game, there's a bit about her that I I don't relate to as much. I mean, Mai is a fashion designer and and she can sew and that is her thing. And I nearly failed home ec. So (laughs) (laughs) not a joke. I nearly failed home ec. (laughs) No, I can relate. I can relate. I can't cook to save my life. So I almost failed as well. So it's fine. But one of the other things that I just I really loved about this story is going back to that Twelfth Night reference. Of course, when Katsu is, you know, thrown back into medieval Japan, when she kind of like goes and starts hanging out with Shingen, or I think maybe even before that, she's sort of um, taken on this persona as a boy. She's a girl, yeah. but she kind of masquerades around. Like going back to that whole masquerade trope that we we're talking about that you love so much. Mm-hmm. That's kind of her deal here yeah. in this story is she's masquerading as a boy. She goes by a boy's name. She dresses like one, tries her best to act like one, and has everybody around her fooled for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I thought was so interesting because I felt like you were exploring themes of gender a little bit here. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So I was wondering like, if you could talk about some of the themes and concepts that you were exploring here, including that one. When I started, I, mean, I think part of this was taking a cue from some versions of Twelfth Night that I had seen played live. Because in the play, if you're watching it, it becomes pretty clear that Orsino is attracted to Cesario when it's, you know, Viola disguised as a boy. And some productions make more of that than others, but it's always in the acting and in the stage directions. It's not specifically in Shakespeare's text. 
And so I wanted to explore this version of, you know, Shingen does fall for Katsu in a sense. He is attracted to her as a boy, as well as he is attracted to this mysterious female angel that he thinks is a spy that he runs into on occasion as well. But he's falling for both versions of her. And as I started to research feudal Japan, you discover that, and I am in no way a, a scholar on this, and I'm hoping that I'm interpreting the, the journal articles I read correctly, they didn't have the same version of gender identification that Western Christian influence did. Men often slept with other men and no one thought anything of it. You know, actually, women were considered to be unclean. And so you would find a, a lot of these historical Japanese warlords were what we would consider bisexual. But, you know, that wasn't a term. It was just like, you slept with who you slept with. So, I mean, I wanted to make it clear that he was attracted to Katsu as a boy. But I also wanted to make it clear that he didn't think there was anything wrong with that from a gender version. You know, he was a little squeaked out by the power dynamic of it. Just also probably a little bit too much of a modern conception, but I didn't want to write Depcon. So, so I mean, that was, in a sense, the fact that they are attracted to each other for who they are without their gender being attached. So, yeah, I was exploring that. I mean, that was definitely one of the themes that I was exploring. It wasn't my main thing, but... You know, she does say to Yukimura later on when he's saying, well, she's giving this other character advice on women because he can't talk to them. And and he's like, well, I can't talk. And you're in love with a flirt. So, you know, you can't really talk. And she's like, well, it wasn't how he treats me as a woman that I fell for. It's how he treated me when he thought I was a boy that made me fall in love with him. I mean, that to me was really important. They, They met, you know, sort of a slightly platonic ideal. But, you know, there's obviously sex in there, too. (laughs) (laughs) there is but i adore that that's how their relationship begins though when he thinks that she's a boy because when you take her entire personality into account she loves to be fierce you know like that is just who she is and i think that it would kill her psychologically to start out a relationship with someone that she really admires who treats her like a dainty little woman who can't take care of herself from the beginning. I think that would have killed her. She would not have liked that. No. It would have spelled death for this relationship. But the fact that the foundation of the relationship started out with Shingen treating her as very capable, a capable person, he would ask her advice on things and he would listen to her opinions I mean, he thought she was a boy, but I mean, just that they had that as the foundational start of their whole relationship was so fascinating to me. And I think she needed that. Yeah. I don't think it would have progressed if it had just started out with the whole, you're a girl and I'm a boy and, you know, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) she desperately needs to be needed and appreciated. And I think that to me, that was the other theme that I was exploring was this whole abandonment because she has been, you know, abandoned by several people in her life, both her parents in one way or another, and then being separated from her brother, and then her mentor abandoning her on the road, even though that was a ploy to get her where he needed her to be. But I didn't want it to be angsty. I mean, you know, in the backstory, the guy who tried to kill her by locking her in a crate, which is in a separate story on my AO3 profile, the prologue, but... But yeah, she's been abandoned a lot. And so she has this need to help 
people and to contribute because you know deep down she's afraid that if she cannot make a contribution to whatever project you know is going on or whatever mystery is happening I know she's going to go off and investigate on her own because she wants to help she's afraid that she will be abandoned again but it isn't conscious I mean I wanted to do a character who had abandonment but I didn't want it to be something she dwelled on and said that it's only later on you know when she has fallen for him and has discovered that oh yeah he's probably going to abandon her too just because of his own canon issue (laughs) that it really starts to force her to behave in a certain way that may not from you know medical point of view be completely ethical but uh yeah it's I, I did want to explore that abandonment issue but not coming from a place of angst but coming from a place of this is why she behaves how she behaves and she doesn't even realize it you know i think that you accomplished that perfectly because like the parts that we get from the fic that help us to understand that background you kind of put them in there as flashbacks to prior things that had happened to her but in these flashbacks she's really not able to give us any like exposition on them <laughs> they're yeah. just sort of presented to us as scenes yeah and we kind of have to interpret those as the reader without her really dwelling on it too much and so that's how i think you accomplish that is you're right she doesn't get a angsty about these past experiences where she has been abandoned but they are a part of her psyche and they do recall themselves in her brain from time to time as she's going about her business but she's not going to like sit there and, you know, dwell on it or have too much introspection on you yeah. know, the effects of all of those past experiences. But you do present them to us so that we understand, you know, like, oh, this is part of your past. This is part of your background. Oh, OK. I can kind of see what's going on here. Got it. So it's just really interesting the way that you did this. But yes, yes. The way that you're talking about her, that absolutely sounds exactly like her. She needs to be needed. It's like she physically can't stop herself from getting involved in everything that's happening. Even when like people are telling her sometimes like, don't do that. Don't get involved. Don't do that. And she just ignores it. And it's like, okay. (laughs) And she goes and does it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it does. I mean, it, it becomes this point where it is a perpetual motion machine that, you know, she is trying to prevent him from leaving. And because he is worried about how she's going to behave because she does take these risks sometimes. I mean, he calls her daredevil. That causes him to behave in a certain way that they just sort of, it becomes this perfect storm, you know, that leads to that decision that she makes near the end. Yeah. And, you know, I loved, honestly, the way that after he discovers her true identity, (laughs) his behavior in a way does change towards her just a little bit now that he knows that she's a woman. But I also loved that in many ways it didn't. He still knows that she's fierce and she's capable. And I love that he calls her devil. A lot of girls would be like, eh, don't call me that. That's gross. But she loves it. It's this fierce little nickname that she just loves. And he knows that. And so he keeps calling her that. And I just loved it. I loved it that he lets her be who she needs to be. And, and that is kind of canon for his character. If you're playing his route as my, he calls my angel. He calls her princess. You know, he calls her goddess. He calls her goddess all the time. But he also calls a lot of the other women in his life angel because you know, he runs this whole spy network. He's got this whole network. You know, so he's got to consider women capable because he employs them as spies. You know, yeah. and that is actually historically accurate too. And the character of Chayom, who is 
and I'm sure I pronounced that completely wrong, C-H-I, the, the woman spy master that, you know, he works with. Yes. Mm -hmm. it, she probably existed in history. She shows up in the game for like half a scene, you know, so she's not exactly an OC because she existed, but with five lines of dialogue in the actual game, I had to, I had to kind of move on from there. But yeah, he does, he does consider women capable because he does, you know, employ them. But within the game, he considers Mai as this, very, this, this woman that he has to protect. And, you know, if you're playing the game, a lot of what happens happens because he's trying to protect her. And Katsuko is not going to stand for that for herself. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I got the sense that she would not have appreciated that at all. And in your story, he just kind of accepts that, you know, that it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Which is so, so great. I had questions about the crafting of your main character, Katsu, because technically she is an OC. Yes. And I know that you did base a lot of her personality on the main character of the game and everything. But I imagine that there were also parts where you kind of had to craft her out of scratch as well. So I was wondering if you could kind of take us through that process of crafting Katsu as your main character. And I also was wondering if the Katsu character evolved for you over time as the story progressed. When I started, you know, wanting to write it, I knew it was going to be OC fic because I wanted a character. Someone once had said in, in, in I, I was scanning, reading message groups, someone was talking about the game and how they wished that there was an option to play a main character who, instead of being girly, was a, quote, feral little beast. <laughs> I was like, that'd be kind of cool. I mean, there's a game called Samurai Love Ballad Party where you have an option to play a woman who's a cook or you have an option to play a female ninja. And I haven't played the game yet, and I'm not sure I will because it does have tragic ending. I want to avoid the tragic ending, but, you know, Ixan doesn't have tragic endings. So I wanted a character who was stronger. And I thought, originally, I thought I'd like to make a female ninja. And in order to make a female ninja who was a time traveler, she needed to have certain skills in the future. But I also needed her to have arrived in the past at a different time than when Maya and Sasuke did. Because she wasn't going to land there and know what the hell was going on and know what to do. And I don't know if you read the prologue which is, like I said, it's a separate story in my AO, AO3 account. But it does cover those seven years where between the time that she lands and how Aki adopts her and how she works her way up from a housemaid to, a, you know, a messenger and how Ikane tries to kill her. I mean, that's all more of an original story, which is almost all OCs. I mean, she will encounter pretty much every potential love interest in that prologue. But it's more of her origin story. It's like, 17, 18,000 words, as I have in a one shot in there. So when I started writing, I started to do the prologue because the prologue was going to be for every single storyline that I wrote with Katsuko. And originally I thought, oh, she's going to be a ninja. Then uh, the more I played with it, the more like, no, I don't want her to be that strong. I want something that would make sense for her skills, you know, but she's not superhuman. You know, she has been trained as an archer because she needs to defend herself. And Aki trained her on that. And she learns how to, you know, ride a horse. And she has some basic but not great sword fighting skills. You know, but mostly it's her street smarts and the fact that she's a really fast runner. And that as a child, she had done some gymnastics. And that was enough to train her how to 
go from one part of Japan to another delivering messages, which is what she is prior to the start of the story, is that she's basically a courier. She's not a ninja, she's a courier. But in my head, I just wanted somebody who was a little bit more fierce and a little bit more, a little less peace-loving than Mai. Mai's a great character, and you're playing her in the game, but what Mai has to learn is that she has been thrust into a war zone, and war is not going to stop just because she doesn't like it. Whereas, you know, Katsu gets back there and, you know, she's not had as great of a pre-time travel life as Mai had, you know, so she can accept that people sometimes suck and, you know, war happens. And so she's adjusted to that a bit better than Mai has. Of course, she's also had seven years to do it. So I wanted to send her back further and, and have a longer time for her to learn these skills that she has. And so the, when I first started designing her, I thought Ninja. And I started figuring that, okay, she's going to be a gymnast and she's a failed gymnast and she's just messed up the biggest competition of her life, like, you know, six months prior to going back in time. And she's just fallen into the spiral of partying and she and her brother end up getting stuck back in time. And like immediately when she's picked up by Aki, he recognizes that she's got these gymnastic skills. And I got about 25 pages of handwritten draft in that and went, you know what? I do not like this woman. And this wasn't, her name wasn't Katsuko at the time, it was Katsumi. And I got in there and I was like, she's whiny, she's not realistic. And so I pretty much trashed the first 25 pages and thought, let's start again. And I poked around the internet and I found this video of women doing urban parkour, also free running. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was so cool, you know, that they were just running and popping against, you know, and it's sort of this street running and they're you know they're doing flips and they're climbing up the sides of buildings and they're so strong and free and I thought no that's who I want you know she's more independent and she's fierce before she goes back in time you know she may not have the specific skills but she's got the format she's got the basics down and so that was how when I went back and redid the prologue you know that's what she does she's because her, her mother has recently died and she's got these issues involved and she's running from that. So you first see her running across a rooftop, you know, and her brother, she has this fight with her brother where he doesn't want it because he sees her nearly fall off this building and almost die taking these chances. And while they're fighting about that, that's when they get sucked into going back in time and separated. And so it's kind of slightly her fault that they're both back there. Because, you know, if they hadn't been in that specific place, that specific moment, having that argument at that point, they probably would not have gotten sent back in time. So she's got a little bit of that, that guilt thing happening, that it's her fault that her brother's back there and has disappeared and is possibly kidnapped by bandits. She does not know. So that was where I went when I redid her. So, yeah, she did evolve just even in the pre-writing and then in that first draft. And then as I started writing Shingen's route, I wanted her to have a character arc where she matures a bit and she's a bit more, and she's got more wisdom by the end and she's starting to go to therapy when, when they spend some time in modern, in modern Japan. Because I also wanted, I didn't want to write a story where her issues and her post-traumatic stress are, caught, are solved by love. No, she's got to do that work on her own. But she does evolve. I mean, she does mature a bit throughout the fic and I wanted her to. And now that I'm writing another storyline with another version of her in another multiverse, you know, she's back to fierce. But 
you know, the version of her that I'm writing now, she's with the cinnamon roll of a hero. So it's, it's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> cinnamon roll. That, that actually sounds really, really cool. To, that would be amazing to see her interact with the cinnamon roll. That would be hilarious. Yes. <laughs> That's a fake marriage or a fake engagement trope that I'm playing with. Oh, that one, and those Midsummer are so much Nightstream. fun. Yeah. <laughs> those are so much fun. Oh, that's so cool. I love hearing about how she kind of evolved from there because like I think that's why I liked her so much is she wasn't overpowered you know she had skills and she had abilities but she wasn't all powerful or anything like that and I really liked that she was an archer I think somebody refers to her jokingly as like Hawkeye at least once (laughs) in your fic and I was like oh yes (laughs) I'm glad that that reference made it in there because it was perfect but yeah it was just really interesting to see her And I do feel like she was an evolving character for sure. And that would be a skill that a woman of that time could have. Yeah. Yeah. So historically, like it it, it fits. It works. Yeah. And I found some some amazing, you know, because I'm doing mood boards, these great pictures of even these these women in Japan now who, who have these archery contests. And, you know, they're in these gorgeous kimonos and they're, they're these huge bows and arrows and they're lined up. They look so powerful and strong. And I'm like, yeah, that's who I want. I want someone nice. who would make sense. And if you're playing the game and you're playing as Mai, Mai does develop skills, especially in certain routes. I mean, if she played when in the Mai and Mitsuhiti route, that is his thing. As he's teaching her, you know, you're going to need to learn some stuff to survive in this era, little girl. You know, that's the whole of that particular route. Speaking of, of him as a character, who does appear in mine too, but uh, he's the guy she plays chess with. Not chess. Not chess. Shuggy. <laughs> yeah, he showed up just a little bit. But yeah, it was just, oh, it was really cool to see her as she interacts because there are tons and tons of characters. And like I said, this is 52 chapters. So there was a lot of content here for you to come up with and write. So I imagine that there were probably certain chapters or scenes that were a lot of fun to come up with and a lot of fun to write. I was wondering which one in particular was your favorite out of all of them. The ones that were, that were in my head before I started writing. Like the cave. The cave. The revelation scene where they have the sword fight. The flirtation scene, which I had a blast writing, you know, where the, he's trying to teach her how to flirt and teach her. <laughs> and I wrote that and went, you know, this, this is totally not the same as the rest of the fic. I may not include it. And I really debated on and off as to whether to put that in there. And I was like, I like this chapter too much to, to throw it out because it is a funny chapter. but. If I sit down and look at all 52 chapters, my favorite one is chapter 31, Sweet. That's the one where she's found out about his health issues and they just have that long moment where they're dealing with that. And then he's like, he lets her know that he doesn't want to talk about serious stuff anymore. And so she tells him the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood and he keeps interrupting her and it's just fun. I just liked going through several emotions in that one scene. So I think that if I had to pick one scene out of every... It would be that one. It would be chapter 31. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes. That was an emotional chapter for sure because they had to be a little bit more serious because they're talking about serious topics. I loved how later on at the end of the story, you do a callback reference to that little red riding hood thing because he has that red hoodie for her, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course they got her that red hoodie because of little red riding hood. I loved that reference. It was so, so great. (laughs) So I went and checked the date when you posted the last final chapter of this fan fiction story. And this was completed back in January. Was it January 2022? 
Yeah, it was January 2022. 2022, yeah. So like really recently, you posted the final chapter of this. And we had talked back and forth in email a little bit. And you mentioned experiencing writer's grief or completed story grief with this project. Because at the time that you reached out to me for the first time, you were approaching the final chapters of this story and you were already starting to feel that come on. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and explore what that experience was like for you. It was rough. And uh, finding it difficult in this new one since I'm approaching finishing the second draft of, of the new one that I'm working on now. And I went through it more than once because in the initial drafting, I, I do my first drafts handwritten, which prevents me from posting as I go, which prevents me from running into the same problem that I did when I did the Phantom piece, which would be posting something and then not, the not knowing where to go. So it's all <laughs> right, written out right. first. So I got to where the last two chapters would be and I knew what was going in them. And I really resisted handwriting down those neck, those last two chapters because it just felt like an ending. And I physically could not, even though I knew exactly what was going in those chapters, I was like, oh no, I'll save that. I, you know, I'm going to save that for writing later. And I started to do my second draft, which is the transcription of the, of the written ones. And it's about the fourth draft that goes up, if you're wondering about process-wise. And... As I started posting them, I had finally, you know, written the last two chapters before I started posting. That was my third draft. And then as I post them, each chapter ends up getting, you know, line edited right before, you know, the week before I posted. I was, I was posting two chapters a week. And I was getting, I was finally, I was getting some interaction from, from the readers, especially, like I said, my unicorn reader who was reading every chapter and some of the people who were coming in from Reddit. So it started to feel suddenly like not only had the original draft, I'd ended it, but it wasn't quite ended because I w it was being revised in real time at this point. And even though it was completely written, there were some changes I did make as I was posting it from just based on the reactions that I was getting from the readers. I mean, Yoshimoto was not nearly as large of a character in my th even in my third draft, but people really liked him. And I was like, oh, you know, I like him too. You know, he, unfortunately, they have not written his story. So he's as close to an OC as you can get without being one, because we don't know much about him. He's, he's a side character in it. But people really liked him. So I started, you know, including him more in, in some of the later chapters. But there was certainly a life to it as I was posting the chapters, even though they were already written, where I was definitely doing more editing. So it didn't quite feel like it was going to be over until I posted the final chapter. And then suddenly, all that life of it was no longer there. It's been released into the world. It's no longer part of me and inside of me. And it really felt like, like abandonment. And I felt it coming. It felt like grief. It felt like they've now left me and moved on, these characters, even though I did end up writing a, you know, a short piece later. And that I know that they're going to appear in, in, in these other routes because it's a multiverse and the timelines are going to start interfering with each other. That's another story. <laughs> but it did. This particular story, I, you know, even before I knew I was going to write it, it was with me, you know, back in 2020. And then when I started writing it near the end, like December of 2020, so I started writing it and July of 21 is when I started posting it. So it was like a year and a half of this thing being with me and in some form or another. 
and then suddenly, you know, it's done. I'm not posting new chapters. You know, I'm still getting occasional readers here and there who will pop in and comment, but you know, it, it is for all intents and purposes over. And it was really hard. I, it, it definitely, this thing that had been part of me and had been taking up a lot of my time and my focus was no longer there. So yeah, it was really hard. And I even posted on Reddit, because Reddit seems to be the best place to find fellow fanfic writers. It's like, does anyone feel this, like, this sense of loss when you finish posting something? And, you know, I feel like, I'm not sure what it is, but I, I feel sad that it's over. And someone then gave me this link to this Tumblr post called Completed Story Grief. And I read it, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. If you look at this thread on Tumblr, it is, I got, like, 11,000 people have now commented, you know, liked, liked it and interacted with it. So it's not just me. And so it was helpful to know that, okay, I'm not, I'm not going crazy. This is an evidence that I have, like, too attached to my characters and that it's, it's not psychosis. This is normal. It didn't make it any less hard to go through, with the exception this is like, okay, at least I know I'm not the only one who's had to do this. Yeah, at least you know that it's not some crazy weird thing that only you are experiencing, right? I'm yeah. sure that must have been at least nice to know that you weren't the only one, that yeah. lots of other writers come to this place when their projects are ending, that they feel that grief, that it's over. Yeah. And people were talking about not only just writing projects, but other projects that they had lived with, you know, and even academic, their thesis had, you know, had gone through the same. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Someone had mentioned that she was a quilt maker and she would feel this same feeling when a project was done. It's definitely not an uncommon phenomenon. It, you know, it's still difficult. I mean, I guess everyone has to go through grief in some form or another in their life. I mean, it's part of life, but I just didn't expect it to happen with something that was inorganic, I guess. Yeah. Okay, so let me ask you this, because I know that you have had a couple of your shorts with screenplays done into films. Did you experience that same grief when the film projects were completed, just like with your fan fiction story? Actually, no. And that's why it was such a surprise when it happened with the fanfic. Oh. I mean, years ago, I had a stage play, my very first stage play that was produced. And at the end of the run of the stage play, I felt that, that, you know, it had been this, this living entity and, you know, there'd been this community of people who come out and see it and this community of actors. And in that, yeah, I felt it then. But with the film, I didn't. And I think possibly because, you know, my part in the film was done a lot sooner. You know, I wrote the script and then I passed it off to the director and, and the producer and the team. And I, you know, even though I, I did craft surfaces because we had no budget, so I, you know, I cooked for everybody. But I wasn't really part of the production in the, you know, in the same sort of sense. It, it didn't quite feel as living when it was being produced as it was when I was writing it. And when it's done, you've got, you know, the film there, the project. And I think because so many people have a part of it, it became something else. And so I watched it grow into something different. And so I didn't feel it in that sense. And I don't always feel it when I finish a screenplay. I do sometimes. And it, it possibly might be because, you know, this fan fiction is written in first person, whereas a screenplay, you have that, your eye is the camera. And so there's a little bit more of a separation between yourself and your product. I mean, I still felt a letdown and a loss, but not to the intensity that I felt when I finished this. Oh, 
That makes so much sense, though. That makes so much sense because, yeah, with the POVs, like you said, this is first person that you've done here for the most part. You threw in a couple of chapters where it was from Shingen, some POV, but it's mostly Katsu. Yeah. So I imagine that that would have been a more personal experience, writing from her point of view. Yeah. The, the game is, is done in first person point of view. And every once in a while, you'll, you'll win a bonus chapter that's done in, in the love interest point of view. So that was me trying to find the, a similar format for the game for the fic. That's why you get his point of view chapters here and there. And I had fun with those, posting those, because I didn't put them on the schedule. I had the regular chapters going twice a week, but every time I ran into his point of view chapter, I would throw that up sometime in between my normal posting schedule as a surprise. I kind of had fun just throwing those there <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, I thought it was fun just to see like every now and then something from his side of things, you know, <laughs> and I'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, that's so cool. So it was, it was very neat to just kind of see those sprinkled in. So before we started recording, you had told me that you have been writing screenplay since, was it 2009, you said? 2001, I think, was when I, I wrote my first one. But it took, you know, about eight years for, I, I wrote one and sent it off to a couple contests and it, it did very, very poorly. And I kind of put it in a drawer and I was like, yeah, maybe this isn't for me. And I started working on other things. And then I came back to screenwriting when I, you know, I worked on some other people's projects. And then I came back to screenwriting once I had a better sense. And then I understood how to rewrite and how to approach a rewrite more. So there was a space of eight years between my first screenplay and the first good draft of that screenplay. And since then, I've consistently written them. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've been writing creatively in one aspect or another for quite some time. So I imagine that you have encountered writing advice over that period of time. I'm wondering what's the best writing advice that anyone has ever given you? Write it down, fix it later. (laughs) I love that, though. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because you can't fix it if you don't write it. If you free yourself from the expectation that the first draft has to be good, and I really had to free myself from that, and I think that did contribute a lot to my writing block, then you can kind of do whatever you want in that first draft. And, you know, your first draft is your creative draft. And then after that, you've got to have to sort of intellectualize how to fix it. But, you know, until you get it written down, there's nothing you can fix. It's nothing. So write it down, fix it later. It's oh, a shorthand version of that. <laughs> oh, I love that, though. I love that. I feel like that burdens a lot of writers, not just fan fiction writers, but like writers everywhere. Oh, yeah, it very much did. Yeah, that feeling that it has to be perfect coming right out of the gate. And I think it stops a lot of people from putting anything on the page. So when you can just get it out there, like you said, because you have to have something there to fix. That's why I switched to handwriting my first drafts because I mean I worked on the computer for quite a while and then once I went back to handwriting my first drafts where you know no one's going to see it because no one else but you can read your handwriting at least my handwriting <laughs> then that frees you to kind of do whatever it is you want plus I mean I can just carry my notebook from room to room and I'll do a lot of writing after I take a shower and just sitting in the bathroom <laughs> steamy bathroom yes yes yo I know a lot of people actually that do that, even with fan fiction writing, they'll like uh, do it on a notebook first. Something about the kinetic pen to paper, having to do it with your own hand kind of a thing sometimes helps people connect, I think, a little bit closer. <laughs> it did. It, it, yeah. it did. It helped me a lot. Going, I mean, the first thing I ever wrote as a kid was handwriting. You know, the first step at writing the short stories and whatever was by hand. 
know, and I think I lost that when I started writing the computer. And plus, when you're when I'm on the computer during the day, I'm doing medical writing, and so I, I think I started to associate the computer with work. You know, right. I'm on the computer, I'm doing work writing, and if it's work writing, you know, it can be creative, especially since you know it's science, and I'm working with medical treatments. But it's not it's not always fun. Right, right. So I had to go back to writing by hand for the the creative, for the screenplays, even the screenplays. I I try to write those by hand in the first draft, just so that I could go back to feeling like writing was fun. Yeah. Like you said, it helps your brain kind of associate that with the creative fun stuff, as opposed to because writing is also your career. So I can see how you would need to psychologically separate the two. (laughs) That's genius. I love that. Now, do you have any other fan fiction writers that you'd like to shout out on the show real quick? Uh, yeah, I do. I was going through my bookmarks because I knew you were going to ask. One is, and, and none of these are Ixen fanfics. I read less fanfics in Ikemen Sangoku than in others. Yeah. Mostly because I'm afraid that I'm going to subconsciously influence my own writing. Ah, yes, yes. So I, 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 especially when I'm actively writing something, I, I read less fanfic in, in my preferred fandoms. Kind of strange, but. So this first one is actually a Warhammer fic. It's a game I've never played. I was doing a review exchange with another writer on Reddit, and I just was totally sucked into her story. It's amazingly well written. It's called Intuitive Mechanics, an Admech Romance by Eldritch Kitty. And like I said, it's just really well written, hard sci-fi. And I got about halfway through and I commented and I said, you know, this is really sort of weird, but it sort of reminds me of My Fair Lady and I'm expecting this character to break into, I've grown accustomed to her face. And she mailed me back and she says, <laughs> yes. She says, that's exactly what this is. It's a My Fair Lady transformation. You're the only one who's noticed. Oh my God, how cool. <laughs> I do like reading transformation. And then there's a Harry Potter fic I just started reading. I haven't finished it yet. It's called The Taming of the Viper, which is... A Taming of the Shrew transformation with Draco and an OC. And that is by Oak and Ocean is, is that writer. And I've also been sucked into this, again, really well-written OC Lord of the Rings fanfic called The Lady of the Rohirrim by Blue Once Moon. Ooh. Again, these are just, all three are really just sucked me in. So, Oh, awesome. That is so, so cool. Those sound amazing. Especially because, like, some of them are, like, transformation fix, which is super cool. It's always fun to see when people do that with fan fiction and stuff. So we'll make sure to put the links to those up in the show notes for everybody that wants to check those out, because those sound amazing and awesome. Thank you so, so much for being here today, Twelfth Night Project. This was amazing and such a delight to speak with you. Do you have any last words for us? I had a great time. And... I hope that if you pick up the game, you enjoy it. You know, there, there's lots of love interests you can play with. It's a fun little app that, like I said, saved my sanity in the first days of the pandemic. I hope if you read my fic that you like it and definitely pop into the comments and say hi. I answer every comment because I, I love the community aspect of writing fanfic. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you so, so much for being here and talking to us about your amazing fanfiction. Like I said, I loved it. It had all of the awesome elements to it. The mystery, the intrigue, interesting plot. There's the romance. There's the masquerade. I mean, it's just like so great. So yes, folks, yes, please check out her stories on AO3. Give her some love. Again, that's 12th Night Project. You can find the links up 
on the show notes as well if you want to find those there. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs>